Yeah, I checked it all out before and then I for- forgot to turn it on. <laughs> Thank you. So, one of the first Dharma talks that I ever read was a talk, I think, that was given by Ajahn Chah on his first, possibly his first visit to England back in the 1970s. I think he visited England twice, if I'm right. And uh, I didn't have the good fortune to meet him or hear him, but uh, the talk begins like this. It begins, seekers of goodness who are gathered together, listen in peace. And I think that's a very, uh, that's always resonated with me as a way of beginning a talk. And of course, he was addressing an audience who'd probably never seen a Buddhist monk before. Seekers of goodness who are gathered together, listen in peace. So may you listen this evening with a peaceful heart. And I'm sure there's some hearts that are very sleepy. And, uh, you know, if you uh, disappear somewhere during the talk, not to worry. I think the first three Dharma talks I heard at the beginning of part one, I probably heard about 10% of each. So feel no shame if that happens to you. Or perhaps your heart may be bright and peaceful, or whatever condition your heart is in anyway. May you be peaceful while you listen. And trust, just trust that you'll hear and remember what's useful to you for the time being. This is the end of, of course, the second day for some of us, half of us, and day 44, if my maths is right, for the other half. And so we're a bit further downstream in this merging of the two rivers that Greg talked about. And what really comes to my heart, or was coming to my heart to want to speak about, is still this topic of refuge and sangha especially because my appreciation of it feels very strong, having just had the chance to sit uh, in part one. And I know that there's been lots of talk on community in the last few days, but maybe there's a, a little bit more I can say about it. And just thinking that, you know, Sangha is one of the three pillars of the Buddha Sasana, of the Buddhist dispensation and maybe we don't talk about it quite as much as we talk about the Buddha and the Dharma and actually when you think of a a three-legged object it needs all three legs to be even and equally strong in order to have stability so maybe it's worth you know turning a little bit more to Sangha and so I want to speak about community as a place of refuge and also as a practice. I would say that community, spiritual community, is a place of mutual support and also a place of accountability. And it's good for us to have places of accountability in our life and a place where we are mirrored and we receive this mirroring and self-discovery as you're probably observing, and also the opportunity for some guidance. And, of course, it's one of the three refuges. We chanted uh, Sankham Sarananga Chami when we took the precepts. Yong mentioned that uh, two of his teachers are Kitty Sara and Tanissa, and they're also teachers of mine. 
and they've practiced, as have some people from the Thai forest tradition. They have a connection with the Mahayana, um, Chinese Mahayana monastery in California called City of 10,000 Buddhas, and they've taken some chants that they do from there. And there's a, the chant of going to ref, for refuge or of honoring the triple gem that they use in English. It says, to the Sangha, I return and rely. The way of expressing going for refuge is, I return and I rely. And I find that very beautiful. Some, something we can return to and that we can rely upon. So most of us here are lovers of Dharma, and all of us here must be lovers of Dharma, even if we don't know it yet, or we wouldn't be here. And uh, most of us have heard talks, some of us hundreds of talks, and read suttas, or read some suttas. And so sometimes, maybe like me, your imagination takes you to Savati and to the Jetta's Grove, and Atapindaka's Park, this place where the Buddha spent 19 of his rains retreats after his uh, enlightenment. So it was a, a favorite place of practice for the Sangha. So you could come there now with me in your imagination. And if you like, you can just hang out there for the evening. Yeah. I sometimes do that when I'm sitting, especially on the moon nights. It stimulates the imagination to think, oh, just, you know, sit like the community of monks and nuns and practitioners in the time of the Buddha in one of these places. But there was one evening when they were practicing there and uh, the Buddha was meditating. And in his meditation, he used to teach, uh, he not only taught human beings, but it's said that he taught the devas. So he's, he's often referred to as the teacher of devas and human beings. And in his deep states of meditation, these uh, spirit beings, beings from the other realms, would come and ask him for teaching. So you can take that as you like, as a story or as a truth. But on this one evening, he was meditating in the Jetta's Grove and probably with a company of monks, and it's said that a, a radiant deva, a beautiful radiant deva, appeared before him, so radiant that she illuminated the whole of the Jetta's Grove. The translation, I know, says she's a she, but she could have been anything else. I don't know. And so she bowed down before the Blessed One, and she stood to one side. And she said, we devas love to be happy. We love to be peaceful. And so do human beings. And this being so, Venerable Sir, please tell me, what are the highest blessings and then the Buddha gave a teaching. Some of you will know it because it's probably the second most popular chant in certain traditions after the Karaniya Metta Sutta. And I'm just going to talk about the first couple of verses of it because the first, the, say, the first four lines are asevana um, chabalanam, which means not associating with the fools or with foolish people, Panditanancha Sevana, associating with the wise. Puja Chapujanianam, honoring that which is worthy of honor. Eta Mangala Muttamang, 
These are the highest blessings. And this line, Eta Mangala Muttamam, it repeats through the whole, the whole sutta as, as he expounds the highest blessings. So just thinking in terms of community and Sangha, what it means not to associate with fools, but to associate with the wise. And this is really the first cause of the arising of wisdom in all of us. And so there are many, many suttas, as many of you will know, many of the teachings that are a kind of progressive exposition of how the path works, they begin by stressing the importance of the company that you keep, the friendships that you have, and where you tend to hang out. And then they progress all the way through right to the end of suffering, as as this particular teaching did too. But I'm not going to go through the the whole thing tonight. So we seekers of goodness who are gathered together here, we're here to elicit and support the growth of wisdom in one another. And also together we honour that which is worthy of honour, puja cha pujaniyanam, or value what's worth valuing. And we're giving expression to that in in our behaviour. So we have candles and the flowers. But all the little pieces of etiquette and mutual consideration and respect that we observe around the place in our actions and then these start feeding into our thoughts and into our speech and so far as we speak you might be speaking to yourself quite a bit I know I do (laughs) and this valuing of what you know, sharing of values. I'm really moved by the fact that not only do we have people from many different places here, but that the age range in this hall is over 60 years, you know, and that there are people of all this variety of ages, different generations, three generations really in this room, who all uh, share the values these beautiful values of seeking wisdom, seeking goodness, seeking truth. And it makes me hopeful for the future of the world that this thing rolls on from one generation to another. And this associating with wise people and not associating with fools doesn't really mean that we have to spend our time figuring out which is the wise and foolish yogi or which is the wise and foolish teacher. Because we all have moments of wisdom and moments of foolishness. And in fact, there are only moments happening, aren't there? So the context that we have here is designed for us to, to support us to keep seeing the moments of foolishness that arise and to bring forth moments of wisdom. So the next, the next stanza of this teaching begins, Patirupa Desavasocha. And excuse me for the Pali, but it makes my heart happy and it helps me remind me, helps remind me where I'm at. And that is uh, living in places, or su- living in places of suitable kinds, or living in supportive places for practice. 
And here we have this beautiful, quiet place. There's actually no traffic noise and not much light pollution around, which for many of us, I guess, is quite rare. And the fact that so many people have practiced here over so many years. And then this very particular environment of a three-month retreat. And I come here at many different times of year, and I can tell you it feels very special and very different um, at this time of year. And the, all the staff here, and there's a large staff, they're also practitioners, yeah. many of them very long-term and deep practitioners. And there's this very um, great understanding, respect, and many of them have actually sat the three-month retreat. And they're very respectful of our practice. I know sometimes I, you know, I'm outside and I'm quiet and I may hear a conversation happening down in the parking lot or somebody getting noisy outside the staff dining room or maybe sometimes you hear uproarious laughter from the, the teachers and the staff inside the dining room and there can be this little frisson of, oh, you know, disturbance. But I was thinking as I was practicing in the last half that it, it's actually the very fact that that stands out is a testament to how extraordinary it is that these large number of staff can move around and do their work in such a way that it impinges so very little on your quiet. That's a really remarkable thing. And that the place is so beautifully cared for and cared for in our yogi jobs. It's everything so spotless. And I wonder how many of us, are, our homes are that clean. <laughs> I just moved from the Bodhi house into the teacher accommodation down at Gaston Pond. And it's really well looked after by the housekeeping staff. But I noticed this little blip in my mind when I open the kitchen cupboards. And I see that the previous teachers have not done the washing up nearly as well as the yogis do it. <laughs> You know, we really, you really have a beautiful place to practice. Yeah. And don't you find that the environment that you dwell in kind of starts to colour the mind? So when our surroundings show a care and a commitment to non-harming and to mindfulness and respectfulness, it starts to colour our internal environment too. And so living in places of suitable kinds, pati rupa desavasu, that applies externally and also internally. So you'll hear multiple times, you probably have heard multiple times this, this teaching that whatever we frequently think and ponder that becomes the inclination of the mind. And I'm very aware of that at the moment as I kind of get more connected with the outside world again, that that outside world starts to colour and shape this mind. And you can think how that's, that's true for you. And a long retreat is an opportunity to detox from that on a, on a really rare scale. When I began my, this long retreat, I could really see how what I'd been watching and reading 
really colored my mind at the beginning of the retreat and it took quite a while to for that to kind of die down so we we just kind of have to be patient with that i have a, one of those kind of slightly greedy obsessive minds that if i discover a movie i like i won't just watch it once you know i'll do it till i've done it to death and then it unfortunately i know them too well so the action replays get going and uh so things were filling my mind in the beginning and then it starts to quieten down. <coughs> and when we notice that, it's a real lesson for us as to what do we put into these minds between retreats or outside of retreats. It really matters. One of the lovely things about being here and having all this space and the beauty of the natural environment is we get to watch the creatures around us. Uh, crickets chirping at, or I don't know if they're crickets or grasshoppers chirping at dusk, and long legged spiders mating, which is a weird sight. <laughs> And all sorts of moths and little frogs that come out if there's been a night of rain. And many, many creatures, different from the ones we have in the UK. And I was really noticing how well camouflaged some of them are. Yeah. They really blend in with the lichen on the trees or the leaves on the ground. And they sort of blend in effortlessly. And that, that's a natural process. I don't think they try to blend in, or the chameleon lizard doesn't try to change its color. It just happens. And I think maybe these minds are no different. You know, Maybe this is just how nature works, that there's this kind of gravitational pull of cause and effect that we blend with our environment. And on the one hand, if that's true, then on the one hand, we don't need to take that so personally when we find ourselves affected or behaving in certain ways. Maybe we can have more equanimity about what manifests. But on the other hand, it gives us, it should make us pretty careful, you know. And then, on the other hand, we also, each of us in turn, affect our environment. One of the things that seems to be really um, becoming more known and understood is the the way that plants and the plant world and the trees communicate underground and overground. So beneath the ground in the forest, and even amongst the trees out here on the property, there's this vast network of mycelia or uh, kind of fungal filaments or fungus-like bacteria. And I don't want to send any of you scientists into a Papancha episode. You can give me information about it at the end of the retreat, but it interests me. Or also about the trees and how actually um, plants emit chemicals through their leaves that communicate with one another. And people talk about this network beneath the ground as a kind of like a being an internet of plants, you know, that they're all communicating and supporting one another. 
And in a way, what we think of as a, a group of separate trees or separate trees, they're actually functioning together as a single organism. And likewise with us, I think we're connected in ways that we probably don't understand. We'll probably never fully be able to understand the mystery of consciousness. I think last night Winnie asked us to reflect on the question, why are we here or what are we here for? Another beautiful question to ask oneself is, on, on whose behalf am I here? You might just take a moment to ponder that. On whose behalf are you here? Somewhere in the tradition... I'm not sure where this, where this is said and whether it's actually in the suttas or it's a commentarial thing or a traditional thing. It's, that it's said that our practice benefits seven generations before us and seven generations afterwards. So I like to think, I don't know for sure, I can't see that that's true, but I like to offer the benefit of my practice to my ancestors or to people who are not you know related to me who I know have suffered difficulties in the past or people who have been generous uh, people who've you know maybe there's so many as one gets older there's so many people who've been benefactors to us in the past and we maybe don't appreciate it at the time and it's too late to thank them but we can offer the benefit of our practice to them. If it helps them in any way, may they too benefit from our practice. And then future generations, you know, not only what kind of a planet do we want to leave behind us, but what kind of experience of humanity do we want to pass on? And reflecting in this way gives me a lot of... of, um, motivation and anyway you notice in your meditation that time also like consciousness is much more of a mystery than you think so we don't know how all this works so I want to just um, play with four overlapping senses of sangha community the word community it comes from the Latin for those who share provisions or food or resources together. So those of us with whom we share our lives. And that's true of all four sanghas. And I've sort of started, I've started big with the seven generations and all beings and things. So I'm going to start with a wider sense and move inwards. So maybe to think of, first of all, of the community of all living beings. With which we're interconnected and to which therefore we're responsible. And when we take the precepts, we're offering the gift of freedom from fear to an infinite number of beings, it's said. And when we do the metta chant in the evenings that we do in the chanting, that wish wish of metta connects us to all living beings without exception. 
Andrea this morning quite rightly said that this practice is a lot about disconnecting and turning inwards. We need to do that. But there's also a paradox here because on some profound level, don't you find that on retreat, you actually feel your connection to all beings more deeply? And this is a good thing to make really conscious, especially if we feel lonely or isolated sometimes in in the practice of retreat. So this chant is pretty comprehensive. And for those of you who don't come to the chanting or don't know it, maybe just to mention who is included. So we we share metta with our, our parents, our teachers, relatives and friends, fellow travelers on the spiritual path, all the yogis in this place. the guardian deities of this place, the devas, all beings, all living things, all creatures, all individuals, all personalities, all females and all males, all noble ones and all who are not nobles. And with those pairs, I like to think of it in terms of all those who partake also of both male and female characteristics. It's not not just a binary thing. And similarly with the noble ones and the non-noble ones, all those who partake of both enlightened and unenlightened characteristics. All deities, all humans, all those in unhappy states, so all those in the lower realms. So whatever beings we're sharing this with, they're also uh, supporting us in that connection, in our aspiration. The devas are supporting us. But if that's a little bit too much for you, to woo-woo, we can come to the second way of imagining sangha, this community, or the community of practitioners here. And here we have a really vast variety of uh, life stories and experiences. So there's some kinds of diversity out here, out in society, that are less represented by this teaching team or by this practice community. And yet, even so, there are no no two people who are the same here. We're all gazing out at the world from slightly different vantage points and seeing things different, slightly differently. And we can also never fully know what each other are experiencing and yet our minds make all kinds of ex- assumptions don't they about yeah I know what that person's up to you know. and I really love that in this particular chant the, the, the inclusion of all individuals and all personalities and I was practicing with this a lot on my retreat I, oh yeah we're all individuals here and the The presence of individuals in community can be a bumpy thing. We have our older and our younger, our faster and slower beings, our quieter ones and our louder ones. Have our late night beings and our early morning beings. There's this whole community that's up early in the mornings and then... You know, probably a whole community that's up late at night that I would know nothing about. (laughs) (laughs) 
the deep sleepers and the light sleepers and those of us who'd like to sleep more and can't and so when you think somebody's a great practitioner and because they're up all the time maybe they're just an insomniac you don't know (laughs) but we project so much onto each other We have the sun worshippers who are out every evening watching the sunset and the moon gazers and the stargazers and the coffee makers and the herb tea drinkers and the eight preceptors and the evening meal eaters, (laughs) the faster eaters and the slower eaters, people who love the armchairs and the people who love sitting in the hall, those who like walking in the walking rooms and so on. And we have individuals who stimulate for us pleasant Vedana and unpleasant Vedana and that's entirely dependent on all sorts of major and minor pieces of our past histories so we're a bunch of individuals and so may all individuals be well may we deeply respect our own and each other's individuality that doesn't have to be a problem and also wow we don't have to compare ourselves and if we, if we really take that to heart, we can also let go a bit of the temptation to f- try and fine-tune and correct things in community. You know? So when we're leaving the note to the managers to try and tweak something that's irritating us, just reflecting, is it really necessary? The first long retreat, the first retreat longer than a weekend, I think, that I sat was uh, as a novice nun for two months in Amaravati. And I think I spent probably a substantial amount of time every day kind of arguing about why we didn't have separate bowls for our dessert from the bowl that we took the rest of our food in because (laughs) the dessert would melt or whatever it was and go all over the main course. And so it was just like, why don't they have separate dessert bowls? (laughs) (laughs) And then a few years later, somebody gave this whole donation of small bowls and we started doing that. It didn't really make life any better. (laughs) Didn't get out of samsara any quicker. Still there, actually. But, uh, you know, we get our, a bee in our bonnet about different things. And uh, Ajahn Sumedho used to say, we used to talk about Ajahn Chah, when he, so after about 10 years as a monk, Ajahn Chah sent Ajahn Sumedho away from the main monastery to start an international monastery because so many foreigners were showing up in Ubon province in Thailand. And so Ajahn Sumedho, after you know, relatively short time in robes, became the abbot of this monastery. And Ajahn Chah would kind of mentor him and back him up. And he, he got very frustrated because he kind of couldn't control things in the community and monks were always doing things that were you know, not right. And Ajahn Chah said, well, if you get a line of people and you line all their heads up, you'll see that their feet are all out of, out of order. And if you line all their feet up, their heads will all be at different levels. So you just have to give up. <laughs> so we can do that too. <laughs> and as you'll notice, we teachers are also individuals and we're all practicing just the same as you. But uh, this is a really rich learning ground, the way we, we act as mirrors for each other's projections, even when we're practicing not looking at one another. You know, it happens from time to time.
But because we're in this place of inwardness and have our commitment to non-harming and and to taking responsibility for our own hearts and minds, we can really learn a lot from this. And learn a lot about ourselves and the way we interface with the world. And we can develop the paramis of patience and kindness and generosity with ourselves and with one another, internally or externally. So that's what follows in this teaching that the Buddha gave to the Deva in Jetta's Grove about after living in suitable places is to have made merit in the past, to have sowed the seeds of happiness. And we can reflect on those that we notice that we have sown and we can keep here sowing more. And that stanza concludes with also receiving appropriate guidance So having the humility to receive and try out guidance that's offered. Eta mangala mutamang. These are the highest blessings. So all beings, the community of all living beings, all the yogis here. And then a third sense of sangha, the monastic sangha, the holders of lineage who we owe to whom we owe the transmission of these teachings. And we're very glad to have some examples of those sitting with us. And also one of the highest blessings in this sutta, he says, is seeing samanas, seeing practitioners of the holy life, seeing monastics, also uh, uplifts and gladdens the heart and reminds us of, of these values listening to the Dharma, hearing the Dharma taught, practicing the Dharma, and at the right time discussing the Dharma. These are the highest blessings. So all beings, all yogis, the monastic sangha. And then the fourth sense of sangha, the traditional one, in this chant, the, the noble ones, the Arya Sangha, those who have practiced to some degree of realization, who are the real safe custodians and upholders of the teachings. This is the refuge where we can uh, turn, where uh, we can offer our respect and that we can recollect to gladden the mind. So one of the practices for gladdening the mind is to just recollect the sangha. And this sangha can arise from any situation in life. So Carol, for those of you who weren't here, gave a beautiful talk on Monday night about the early Buddhist nuns, the poems of the enlightened Buddhist nuns and how they came from such a wide variety of backgrounds. You know, you had princesses and uh, rich women and courtesans and prostitutes and uh, ordinary housewives and beggars and people from all walks of life. And they all, um, there were examples of all of these amongst the awakened nuns. Similarly, amongst the monks. And in the centuries that have followed, people have woken up out of all walks of life. One of the epithets that's used for the Arya Sangha, 
again in the traditional chanting, is Sadhammajo, which means born of the Dharma. I love that. The Dharma gives birth to noble ones. And traditionally, these noble ones, I used to be mystified this, by this when I first just came, you know, started doing the chanting. It talks about the four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings. So the, those who have realized the four stages of awakening and those who are on the path to the four stages of awakening. And that means those who have abandoned the fetters of personality belief, of attachment to rules and rituals, of doubt, of ill will and sense craving, of restlessness, conceit and ignorance. And these are, you know, these are huge topics and we'll touch on them in different ways in future teaching, I'm sure. But it's worth naming them. But also there are, you know, there are different orthodoxies around about what exactly all this means. And we may have studied particular maps of the path. How do the stages of progress, which are logical stages of progress of this path work? And where are we on it? So you might worry, is there any real Arya Sangha here? Any really enlightened beings or are we ourselves are we we stream enterers yet will we ever be stream enterers should we be aiming to be arahants or should we be aiming to be bodhisattvas and if we set the wrong aim will it kind of trip up our progress on the path you know uh, are the teachers enlightened at all is Joseph Goldstein enlightened? <laughs> Is Ajahn Sumedho enlightened? Was Ajahn Chah enlightened? Or whoever, Upandita, Utejaniya. Uh, it's best to put all that aside. At least I don't find it very helpful as a speculation or as a way of using this, using these, these um the knowledge of these these fetters. The question, really, more useful question, is what's happening in your own mind in this moment? This we can this we can discern. This we can start to see. You know, is this a moment where personality belief is taking over? Am I grasping at an idea that? If I just do X, Y, or Z religiously, then I will automatically wake up sooner or later. You know, have I fallen into this kind of attachment to rules and rituals? Is there doubt in this mind in this moment about the path, or is there confidence? Is there ill will or not? Is there sense desire or not? Is there restlessness or not? Is there conceit or not? Is there something not yet fully understood? These are useful things to notice. Moments or times when any of these things seem to be present and also when they seem to be absent. 
And sometimes when we're practicing a lot, we can, we can get disheartened because it's like we notice all the defilements in the mind. I have days or moments, times where I see nothing but chalases going on here. You know? and, uh, and then we get to a stage where actually we're glad because we're noticing stuff. And I love something that Joseph says, you know, or I've heard him say that uh, when he notices conceit arising in the mind, you know, it used to, oh, well, you know, here I go, instead of, oh, here I go again, it's, oh, I'm practicing on the path to arahantship. Because conceit doesn't disappear from the mind until right at the end of the path. But when we see it, we're moving on. So I have, I, you know, rather than getting too concerned about the other people's maps of the path. I, I, I have a pragmatic approach. Just as with the chanting, I'm thinking of, you know, all those who partake of both enlightened and unenlightened qualities rather than trying to figure out which of my teachers fall into which category of enlightened beings or unenlightened beings. I remember um, I was teaching not that long ago with a, a dear friend and there's a practitioner who I respect very much and she gave a Dharma talk which I thought was absolutely stunning. It was so profound and clear. And I said to her in all sincerity afterwards, maybe more sincerity than tact, I said, wow, you know, if I didn't know you, I'd think you were completely enlightened. <laughs> she, she took it very well. <laughs> we just don't know. We don't know. But I, I think that whenever the heart and mind are, are practicing correctly towards the abandoning of these things, then we, we're tapping, in that, to that extent, we're tapping into the stream of the Arya Sangha, of the Noble Ones. So what in you is Sadhammajo, born of the Dharma? Notice it. Notice it when it arises. Notice it when you discover it in your practice. And we don't have to make a personal identity out of it because if we do that, then we're just recultivating personality belief. And if these things that I'm talking about are confusing you, please don't worry because we'll, you know, we'll circle around this kind of territory in the teachings. It's plenty. There's no hurry with all of this. I find it helpful to think of our practice community also as being one awakening organism. And in a sense, we are, just like the, just like the forest here. And when I do that, I find that there's more kindness in this heart and less competitiveness. You know, I'm, I'm trained to be a very competitive kind of person. We might, some of us notice that characteristic in ourselves and then we get very anxious about our performance and how we're doing in relation to other yogis. But if we see ourselves as one awakening organism, 
then the race to get there first doesn't really make sense. And actually, maybe it's more in line with the way things actually are. And also, at times on retreat, when I felt like I'm really losing the plot, uh, it's very helpful to just follow along with what the community's doing. And that carries me until I find my balance again. So you might you know, experiment with that, or you may be something that you too have found. Tanisara, our teacher, likes to talk about in terms of path activity. And that sort of depersonalizes the, this, again, this, the doing of the path. And you might notice, actually, when you've settled in and you've been practicing for a while, that it seems like the practice takes on a momentum of its own in the mind. And so that's the kind of fifth way, perhaps, of looking at, at Sangha. That there are actually no beings here at all. There's just Dharma. Because each of us, we ourselves, each of us is a river. Let alone the two rivers, the Colorado and the Green River mingling. Actually, what's here is just a vast river of causes and conditions. And all our rivulets are part of it. As Ajahn Chah said in a talk there, just the path and the kalesas, the defilements, battling it out in consciousness. In each of us and in all of us. Or the saying, I don't know, I can't remember, maybe it's from the Dhammapada, the path is, but no traveller on it is found. There's just one path happening here. So we can take refuge and receive the support of community, the community of all living beings, all life with which we're intimately connected. We inter-are, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, which supports our existence and with which we can share the fruits of our practice. And then we're fortunate to have a community, a practice community here, to which we can usefully make ourselves accountable. And it was really beautiful this morning, by the way, to see uh, those of you who have already handed in your devices, stepping up to you know, form a new community and to support those who've just arrived and we're doing the same thing. That was beautiful this morning. And then there's the community that's born of the Dharma, Sadamajo on which we can rely and which I believe is manifesting in this place collectively amongst us and to which we can return for refuge over and over because we lose the way and we return and we lose the way and we return. But this is what's reliable to return to until the point where all that's left is just dharma just freedom and just peace.
I think that's enough words for now. Just let them go. Take a pause in Anatapindika's Park in the Jetta's Grove. <laughs> continue with our practice. So. Thank you for your kind attention. I make a little plug for chanting in the evenings because that can be a very beautiful way of honouring what's worthy of honour and expressing our intention at the end of the day. And you're very welcome to come if you don't want to chant and you just want to listen and share the intention. But of course, you know, if that's not your thing, no, no pressure. And if you're tired, then it may be the thing to do, the way to support your cell in this awakening organism is to take it to bed. Mm-hmm. And uh, may all individuals be well, and may this one awakening organism be well too. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.